Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 113, recorded on April 14th, 2021. The Cloud Pod goes mobile. Good evening, Ryan and Peter. Hello. Hello. We are missing Jonathan. He's uh, tied up with something. But uh, uh, first, I have some some news, uh, a little bit of follow-up, actually, uh, general news. Um, IBM, as we talked about uh, previously, is going to be splitting off their legacy managed infrastructure services business uh, into its own company at the end of 2021, and they've been working on this for a few years, and they've now named it. And, uh, you know, could you guys come up with any great names to replace IBM uh, or, you know, something around legacy managed infrastructure services business as name options? I think I would have gone for like big robotic, you know, evil robot names. Yeah, Somehow, that's good. You know. I, I would maybe write in... blue, like blue, something around blue. Yeah, blue would be makes sense. Or you know, maybe blue and red go together. So maybe purple, something purple would be makes sense because it's mm. IBM Red Hat. I don't. So many things I could think of just off top of this. Um, you know, but IBM decided to go with one that kind of sounds like Tinder, uh, with the new name Kindrel. And that's not spelled Kindrel like any way you probably would think to spell it. It's spelled K-Y-N-D-R-L. Again, that's K-Y-N-D-R-L, Kindrel. And all I can say is I really do hope that they didn't spend a lot of money with consultants to come up with this name. Because, <laughs> man. Also, it, also, like it also sort of sounds like a, you know, a prescription drug. You know, like there should be an ad like Kindrel will, yeah. you know, help you with your blood pressure. Uh, but side effects may include resulting in lower employee satisfaction, inadequate investment in IT resources, and eventual degradation of profits and people who care less about their jobs day after day and the general mm-hmm. purpose of your business. Mm-hmm. Talk to your doctor today about yeah. Kindrel. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're maybe they just like they went to register names and there was just like nothing left. It was just like the only letters we couldn't even get a vowel, so we went with Kindrel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, IBM is a you know many billion dollar a year company. You don't think they could buy a Val? <laughs> <laughs> you think? Uh, think? I hope. Uh, I hope we sneak some uh, in editing. I hope they sneak some Wheel of Fortune music in there. <laughs> uh, well. That, uh, you know, I, I would look to no longer talk about legacy management for services businesses from IBM, other than this will happen sometime in the next, you know, six months or so, I assume. Uh, and Kendra will be born into the world for you to all mock and make fun of. And, you know, you'll know a bad solution when you hear it's from Kendra every time. So that's great. <laughs> well, uh, when Andy Jassy was announced as the new CEO of uh, Amazon, we speculated on a couple different people uh, who potentially could be the new AWS CEO, and we were wrong completely because, of course, they went outside to Tableau and pulled in uh, Slimsky to become the new CEO. Uh, but one of the people we mentioned here on the show was Teresa Carlson, um, who we thought might be a great candidate. Uh, she has now apparently left AWS and joined Splunk as its president and chief growth officer. Uh, she joined AWS back in 20, 2010 uh, to be the VP of AWS Worldwide Public Sector and Industries, uh, and she founded that group as well for them, uh, and that was after serving nine years as VP of federal sales and ops at Microsoft. Uh, you know, I wish her the best of luck at the company. Uh, I dislike just as much as Oracle and Elasticsearch. Uh, so, you know, best of luck to her <laughs> in her endeavors to uh, revolutionize Splunk uh, in some way that hopefully is not as terrible as they are right now of the Oracle of logging. <laughs> That's amazing. I remember when they were like the super cheap solution for Sim. 
that was before people logged things. <laughs> you know, once, yeah. once the cloud came and we logged everything, all of a sudden it became the not so super cheap option. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really has, you know, I, although I will give them credit for that. Like the reason why we log all the things is because all of a sudden it was accessible, visible, and searchable. Um, you know, so Splunk has been great, but their pricing model has just been just gougy over the last few years. So I'm hoping as chief growth growth officer that Teresa can fix it. Maybe she'll bring some of that Amazon, you know, we should make our services cheaper for customers mentality will uh, we'll come to bear for it here for this. All right, moving on to AWS. Uh, you know, we talked previously about AWS's desire to potentially uh, fork Amazon or Elasticsearch uh, after Elasticsearch, of course, changed the licensing uh, off of Amazon or Apache Linux to license V2 uh, to proprietary license that is no longer friendly to other vendors. Uh, we talked about you know there's a big rub up roll about this from you know, Logs.io and a bunch of others, and so this is finally you know birthplace of the new fork of Elasticsearch uh, from AWS, Logs.io, IBM, SAP, Capital One, and probably many or others who will join in as well. Uh, and they're now launching this as a new product called OpenSearch, the OpenSearch project, which means they're also sadly retiring uh, the open distro for Elasticsearch branding, uh, which means we won't be able to say open distro for Elasticsearch as many times as possible for Peter in the lightning round, which is the most disappointing part of this entire <laughs> announcement, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. And we'll have to do more MongoDB compatibility, that's yeah. all. Yes. Can we say like open search with Elasticsearch compatibility? Because that's confusing and hard. Well, that's that's awful. Yeah. And that's not part of the, and that's not part of the official branding, no. so of course we you know that we just be making fun of it at that point. Uh, but AWS says uh, you know this is their long-term investment in open search uh, to ensure customer users continue to have a secure, high-quality, fully open-source search analytics suite with a rich roadmap of new and innovative functionality. Uh, Elasticsearch and Kibana are the two parts that, uh, that are going to be based on 7.10.2, uh, and they're now being branded OpenSearch and OpenSearch Dashboards, which Kibana as OpenSearch Dashboards is actually what it is. It's such a better name. <laughs> like, why wasn't it Elasticsearch Dashboards? Like, who thought this a long yep. time ago? Uh, all this will be licensed under the Apache License V2. Uh, and Amazon says you can use, modify, extend, embed, monetize, resell, and offer open search as part of your products and services. And they're also providing permissive usage guidelines for the open search trademark, so you can use the name to promote your offerings. So they don't care if you use open search from Logs.io or whatever <laughs> other thing you want to name it. They are totally fine with that. Uh, Amazon Elasticsearch services as well, the ones you pay for on AWS, those will all be rebranded to Amazon OpenSearch as well uh, sometime in the future. They are uh, also committed to continuing to support the prior Elasticsearch versions, uh, so all 19 versions they currently support, plus all new open source uh, versions will be supported uh, as part of their managed services, all for you, providing you a seamless upgrade from 6.x and 7x managed clusters to open search. I mean, seamless is, you know, they're taking little liberties there. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> seamless before, it's not going to be seamless now. but. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, the one is... thing about this whole thing is they definitely seem to have heard the feedback about them and open source and how they treat it because they've they provided you know all those licensing rights that they're giving you the ability to use the trademark. They actually talked about you know Amazon being the primary steward and maintainer of open search today, uh, but they are proposing guiding principles for the development of open search that they want to make clear uh, that can be used for any stakeholder in the project, as well as asking for feedback from the community to work towards an open. Uh, government, not uh, potentially open right, uh, the right governance model uh, approach for this particular project. And so, some of the principles I thought were interesting too. One is that they want to provide great software. They want open source uh, to mean it. So they said open source like we mean it. They want a level playing field. They want it used everywhere. They made it way to, made with your input. 
They want it to be open to contributions. They want to be respectful, approachable, and friendly, and a place for you to invent. So that's all pretty great. And if you are excited about this and you want to go run to the races, uh, Amazon would like you to know this is alpha. <laughs> don't don't use this for production yet. Uh, they said they had to take quite a bit of work to pull out all of the elastic commercial capabilities out of the code, um, and they are still working on testing. They do expect that to be beta in a few weeks, uh, with a production-ready version by early summer uh, available for you uh, at that time. So keep that in mind. Kind of feels like they they took the the lawsuit that Elastic has filed against AWS and just hi, like every claim that Elastic made, they put into their press releases. They're <laughs> doing the opposite. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a and every move. change that Elastic made to their license agreement, mm -hmm. they did the opposite. Yeah, I mean this has enough, um, you know, big business backing where I don't think it's going to die. I think it is going to take off, and I think this is exactly what we thought was going to happen when Elasticsearch started making all the noise and filed their suit. And so I see this as the beginning of the end. Well, also, it was interesting because I saw someone on Twitter say, well, technically Elasticsearch the one that forked it and changed the license. <laughs> like Amazon's actually just <laughs> keeping on the Elasticsearch open source thing that they always had, and they're just continuing to drive that forward. And I thought that was a very interesting perspective as well. That is. Uh, you know, everyone's saying Amazon hard forked, but it's, it really was Elastic who did the hard fork and changed the licensing terms on you. Mm. That's a very good point. It's also a warning to all the other companies kind of like Elastic. Uh, that this is what's going to happen if you want to change your license terms. And I will cry for all the billion dollar companies later. <laughs> yes. Well, Amazon has a new EC2 auto scaling feature. Uh, and this one is something I think Jonathan might have talked about a couple times where when they started adding in the ability to hibernate and to uh, stop instances, that'd be great if you could then use that in auto scaling groups. And so now they have done that for you with a new feature called the auto scaling warm pools. Again, uh, warm pools, you know. Uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> you know, Andy, as the new CEO of Amazon, I hope they don't let him name anything anymore. Because you know, it's been been rumored for a long time that Andy is in charge of most of the naming, and you know, did things like SageMaker and some of the other uh, weird names out there are Andy's brainchild. And so, I hope in his new role as CEO of Amazon, he's no longer allowed to name products. Just, just put that out there. Uh, but Warm Pools allows customers to improve the elasticity of their apps by creating a pool of pre-initialized EC2 instances that are ready to quickly service app traffic. Additional warm pools can save you compute costs by placing pre-initialized instances in a stop state. Uh, these are great for apps that have a time-consuming initialization step, like loading gigabytes of data, uh, deploying you know, JBoss or some other terrible Java framework, provisioning services, or running custom scripts that can take several minutes or longer to serve traffic. And now you can go from a stopped instance to serving traffic in as little as 30 seconds uh, with an auto-scaling group, which was not something you could do if you had a lot of heavy configuration or you didn't bake your AMI. Uh, by default, when configuring a warm pool, will maintain enough pre-initialized stopped instances so that the auto-scaling group can rapidly scale out its maximum size at any time. And you also integrate this into lifecycle hooks to move nodes in and out of the warm pool. This is a super great feature. I, I've worked on, I think, a number of apps where you know it, having to build up a queue or a cache, sorry, to you know to serve traffic, and it was time-consuming and startup, and you'd always have these big dips and in latency as as load was transferred over and and the cluster was scaling so this is a huge advantage to anyone who has that challenge it's great yeah we've had to we have had to try to engineer around this problem for several big customers who had like a 20 minute process that we just couldn't get around by using um standard asgs 
and uh, this would have been so much easier. Mm-hmm. A lot of advantages of this, and you know, in some cases, it's one of the arguments you might have been deploying uh, containers. <laughs> so, because you know, to get faster spin up and of these smaller container objects tied to EFS volumes. Um, a lot of that might go away here in this particular use case. So mm-hmm. I'm glad to see it. It does make sense with the hibernation and the, the ability to stop instances that these things are just kind of ready and ready to go. You're only consuming potentially disk space while they're waiting for to be spun up, and that's a significantly cheaper use case, but it gives you the performance and scale that you really want. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, Amazon and Verizon are teaming up to provide a new 5G-powered edge computing infrastructure, and uh, in the walkthrough, uh, Ryan accused me of just repeating Wavelength from two years ago, which, <laughs> to clarify for all of you, is Wavelength is the ability to run Amazon infrastructure in Verizon's network on the edge. This is for you to be able to run outposts in your facility with Verizon 5G built into the outpost uh, to provide edge computing hardware with 5G network technology for uh, to support customers that are pursuing initiatives that's just warehouse, robot implementations, and more. This allows you to set up a dedicated 5G network at your factory, corporate campus, or other locations, and systems then use 5G to transfer data between them. Uh, and by combining private cloud hardware with high-speed wireless connectivity, AWS and Verizon hope to offer enterprises an all-in-one infrastructure package for building edge computing environments. Bingo! I hit the bingo card on the buzzword <laughs> bingo here. Uh, Verizon and AWS argue that this solves major challenges to traditional edge compute devices, which normally rely on Wi-Fi, which can be difficult to manage and prone to performance issues per this press release, or wired networks, which are more expensive to upgrade and may not be in locations necessary. Now, you know, I've been doing Wi-Fi for a long time. Enterprise Wi-Fi is you know, getting easier and easier as well. You know, with things like um, what, what's the Cisco product uh, that they own? Meraki. Meraki, yeah. You know, there's, oh, there's yeah. tons of really great solutions to make Wi-Fi management much easier. So difficult, maybe prone to performance issues is a, a radio interference problem. You know, that one maybe in some cases. But then a wired networks are more expensive to upgrade. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I still have Cat5 in most of my walls, and it's still plenty fast for most use cases. <laughs> and if you're running the need for 10 gig to the desktop, I'd like to know what your use case potentially yeah. is that you'd be requiring this type of upgrades. Uh, but the use of 5G apparently removes all these trade-offs while improving network performance and processes. And one of the first customers apparently is Corning Inc., uh, which, of course, makes Apple iPhone uh, glass and things like that, has deployed Apple's hardware with a Verizon-powered 5G network in its North Carolina optical cable plant to power automation apps. I mean, I do think that some of the branding and, you know, the difficulties are a little bit maybe exaggerated, but I also, and I also feel that, you know, 5G, especially since it's new, is going to have its own unique brand of difficulties and and interference problems uh, that people will find out as we, as it gets rolled out. But, uh, you know, in the end, like, I think this is, you know, I like the idea of, of moving this forward, you know, making 5G kind of ubiquitous. So I like it. but and you know I'm now that I know what it actually is, um, you know, it makes it much easier to consume versus where I was in the pre-show. I was like, huh? 
Yeah, it's uh, it was sad. I you know I got my my COVID vaccination and I, you know I did not get five G connectivity out of that. So I'm sort of sad about that. And, you know, or, or did my phone get better connectivity from the radio that's not apparently in mm-hmm. me? So you know, it's, it's a, really it's unfortunate. Really I'm is. Told they don't to buy a five G phone just until after the vaccination. Right. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, I, I, it's sort of weird to me. Five G is sort of becoming the dot net of network connectivity, where <laughs> you know it's so broad and no one actually knows what it really is. It just five G, and you know everyone's like, "This is the future." And it feels sort of like dot net back in you know two thousand five or two thousand six, whenever they were, you know, saying how it was the future of Windows development, and no one knew what it meant. <laughs> so it's a, you know, some, there's some parallels there. So I, I don't blame you for being confused. Mm-hmm. Embrace and extend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't help that most of the major cell phone companies are sort of saying that their existing networks are 5G when they're they're not. You know, like, we've improved the performance by blah, but, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just like, you can get a 5G phone and we'll give you 5G and a little icon on your phone, but it turns out exactly. you're nowhere near a 5G antenna, and that is just not the case. So it's, it just means faster than when our network was called 4G. Yeah, exactly. And... Probably not, actually, if you do the speed test, right? I think, I, you know, honestly, I blame Apple for a lot of this confusion, too, about the 5G, 4G, 3G thing, because they had the Apple iPhone 3G, which was the one everyone wanted because it was the first one that was really fast. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the 3G. And so if you didn't have 3G, and AT&T marketed the crap out of that, uh, the 3G thing, because they were the only networks that had it initially. Um, and so, you know, ever since 3G, they've always had this huge push around 4G and 5G now. And, you know, I, I blame at t and Apple. 4G, so LTE. Uh, like the, they throw around these terms, you know, and it's just. Yeah. Fun. Well, and, you know, you used to have GSM versus CDMA and all kinds of weird things. And, you know, they were all like, oh, Verizon's network is garbage because it's CDMA and everyone wants, you know, GSM. And then LTE came out and, like, basically merged the two together. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's, it's been a weird world in cell phone and being in marketing and like where what i said yesterday is no longer true because <laughs> it's all converged uh, which is interesting yeah crazy times uh, amazon redshift is uh, now supporting data sharing when producer clusters are paused uh, and so this basically allows you to share live data across redshift clusters for reading purposes without the complexity and delays associated with data copies and data movement uh, so you could always have a publisher and subscribers, and you could uh, pause and resume your data sharing consumers, or subscribers in this case, uh, clusters on demand or based on a schedule. But with this new capability, your producer cluster, which actually generates the data that goes to the consumers, uh, can also be paused while still allowing data sharing with the consumer clusters. Uh, the ability to share data when producer clusters is paused helps you reduce costs in use cases where workloads in the producer cluster are sporadic or intermittent. Yeah, it's interesting how they're, like, what underlying technology made this possible for them when it wasn't previously. I feel like EBS multi-connect is potentially yeah. the, uh, the culprit here. So I think you, you know, you basically have the, the producer who produces this large amount of data, you know, does a machine learning job or a big AI machine job, uh, and basically rolls that into, you know, EBS into, you know, maybe parquet files or something else you're going to use. And then you have your consumer redshift clusters that are going to share that data. Uh, to basically then you know produce output as you make queries against it, and so since that that calculation part may only be once a night or a batch function that you don't need to run all the time, it, you know it was nice before you could you pause the subscriber because if it was doing workloads off that, but if you actually wanted to use it for a production workload that wasn't changing, you couldn't actually go that direction. So this allows you to do now both bidirectional ways, and not just su- pausing your subscribers. All right, moving on to GCP. Uh, so this uh, this article is um, 
you know, about a customer of GCP's actually, and I thought it was interesting because it, it opened my eyes to some things I hadn't really been thinking about with uh, Azure Orbital and AWS Space. Uh, and so I thought I'd share it with you guys as well, so you guys could get this enlightenment that I got. Um, and so this customer is Leaf Space, uh, who they're part of the Google Startup Accelerator program, uh, which is why there's a blog post about them. And uh, traditional TV satellites, they point out, are typically 36,000 kilometers from Earth's surface, and they're geostationary. Uh, while newer satellites like SpaceX's or LEAF satellites work at the 500 to 2,000 kilometer uh, level, and at these lower elevations, you can't have a stationary ground station to talk to these because they're moving with the Earth's atmosphere, which we kind of understood uh, artificially, at least in my understanding of this how this worked, but maybe you didn't. Uh, and this requires, of course, more ground-based stations. So if you want to launch one satellite, I now have to have a worldwide network of ground-based antennas to then talk to that satellite as it traverses the world. Uh, and that's problematic for new satellite operators like SpaceX and others um, launching you know, that one satellite. And so at least, uh, Lease Space is coming in to basically give you a system to lease their set of antennas. And so they've done the work for you. They've invested in the capital and the infrastructure. And their whole mission is to simplify access to space with a global infrastructure of antennas, processing equipment, and software that offers a service to satellite operators. And then basically a satellite operator leases time on the LEAF ground network, and when a satellite is in view, uses LEAF space antennas and other equipment to communicate uh, between the satellite and the ground. And then when the satellite moves on, the next customer comes in and basically uses it. And of course, this is all powered by their network cloud engine, which of course is powered by uh, Google at the end of the day for their global SaaS uh, space uh, as a service software. So I thought this was quite interesting. Uh, it does do a bunch of work around managing multiple satellite missions by adjusting relevant mission constraints, automatically optimizing your schedule of contacts between satellites and antennas, and orchestrates the activity of the network of the network uh, by automatically configuring signal processing equipment at ground stations, like a Kubernetes orchestrator for satellites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like such a huge capital investment to build that network. I, just, I wonder how much money they had to raise. Usually you don't see startups raising that much money for capital investment like that. Yeah, but this is such an obvious gap. I bet VCs were throwing money at it. Or maybe PE, like yeah. Because that is, I mean, it's, I hadn't thought of it, and, you know, smarter people at Leaf Space did, but, you know, obviously. Uh, and so that's, it's super cool. You know, it's such a challenge that you, I hadn't thought of. It's not an obvious one. And so if you can be an early adopter in that space, pretty smart. Yeah. It also can be kind of devastating too. You know, look at GoGo Wireless <laughs> when you overinvest in physical hardware as well. Yeah, that's true. you expect it to be like one of the big, you know, companies with fully depreciated assets, huge cash cow businesses that are in that space. I mean, you could imagine all the like the um, telecom providers getting into that business instead of a, a startup. But hey, it'd be great if it works. Well, I, I wonder, you know, with. Amazon and Azure are basically building cloud data centers with satellite activity as well. Can they actually, are they actually investing that much in capital either? Because they may be able to leverage actually other providers who are making these things available to them to then orchestrate and do all the work and sell lease time on. So it, it might be a very complicated business model. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. It looks like they've had four rounds of funding so far, uh, about 5.4 million so far. Well, that's funding. nothing. Yeah. So they're not building it that's up just, themselves. Yeah. They got to be leveraging yeah, someone else's infrastructure. That's my guess as well. So they're really giving you the network cloud system to uh, fund and build this all out. Cool. So, interesting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely, I was like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about the geostationary versus you know, you know, or synchronous orbit uh, satellites that are basically moving around and all the connectivity you would need to have for that and why these things make sense. And 
you know, you see the reason why Amazon Space and Azure Orbital are coming out to be to basically help you provide these services. And then they can also sell you SaaS services or cloud services on top of all this to process your data and to do all the other magic you want your offering to do, which makes yeah. sense. All that data's going to go somewhere, right? Yep, to into their data warehouses yeah. to then process and <laughs> get exploited by some other terrible hacker in <laughs> <laughs> some terrible way. Well, uh, Google Chief uh, Chief's Information Security Office, Phil Venables, who joined the company about three months ago, is starting a new blog series that we'll be keeping an eye on here. Uh, he will be commenting on all kinds of things going on in biggest announcements from Google and cybersecurity, as well as industry trends and analysis. Uh, he highlighted uh, you know, some kind of boring stuff this first time up, uh, but like global supply chains in the era of COVA, multi IDC multi-cloud white papers. Uh, Google has apparently a spectra proof of concept he talked about. Uh, that he published uh, some interesting stuff here. So he'll be writing blogs, sounds regularly, and so we'll be keeping an eye on that, and hopefully he'll be announcing some cool stuff there. So if you're in the security space and interested in what Google's doing in the security world, I would recommend checking out this article and subscribing to the RSS feed for the new Google Cloud CISO Perspective blog. I just love when, you know, security folks, especially in tech, you know, are open and honest and giving opinions and and sharing their perspectives rather than, you know, the old days of cloak and dagger and hiding everything behind, you know, secrecy and security theater um, in an attempt to sort of protect whatever protections you had and keep them secret. Um, I think it really did a number on the tech industry in general. And so I think it's, this is great. That'd be cool to read, follow up on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything, I, I read this, you know, it wasn't anything mind-blowing or anything, you know, it's an introduction. I was kind of hoping the supply chain was a little bit more geared towards maybe the, you know, solar winds sort of supply chain problems, but with software, but it wasn't. But I look forward to the next coming blogs, and hopefully it's, uh, you know, we get some dirt on the uh, the internet industry. Russia bad? Yeah. You think that's going to be the next one? Russia bad. <laughs> Russia bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you guys love to save time, and you love to save time with things like no-code. <sighs> and so <laughs> I have another no-code solution for you, uh, and that is, uh, you know, last fall, Google gave you the early access to AppSheet Automation, which they, they call a significant addition to their no-code solution, AppSheet, that leverages Google AI to make it easier to automate your business processes. And I'm now proud to announce to you that this is now generally available and designed to eliminate busy work. Some examples of the busy work uh, may be manually entering receipt data for receipts or tracking down paper copies, uh, which could be time consuming. Uh, but with AppSheet's automation, intelligent document processing feature, these tasks are no longer inefficient. Unstructured data such as invoices, receipts, W9s can be or W9s can be automatically extracted and pushed into process automation and into all of your subsequent business forms that you've created in your no-code solution on top of AppSheet. It's like it's there's so much here that is good, and then it's just killed by the fact that it's all just going into an app that's basically a spreadsheet on the back end that some poor sap has to maintain and manage. Uh, like, I, you know, I would love way more document recognition for filing expenses where you just upload a receipt as a picture and it just figures that stuff out. I like all of those things. But now when I just think of the, the spreadsheet, the poor spreadsheet guy. Yeah, really. You can run a lot of businesses on Excel, let me tell you. I know, I know. And I find that, the you know, the 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 more sort of businessy tasks that I do, the more I use Excel, so I start to get a different perspective on it. It's like, But it's frustrating at the same time. Yeah. I, I've yet to really find a great no-code solution 
that I want to build and use this capability for. And I, you, know, you hit so many sharp edges so quickly if you've got any understanding of like programming concepts and like what you might be able to do. Or you built an app before, and you're like, oh, well, okay, what I want to do then is I want to take this data, I want to transform it, and I want to insert it into this. And it's like, uh, yeah, I can't do any of that. It's just so much easier if you have yeah uh, any kind of programming chops. And I think that's really the perspective that we're missing, right? It's, it's, it, it's not geared for us. This is not a service for us. This is geared for people who do not have that option. They do oh, 1,000%. You know, and so like, it's, it is really funny. As I, like, I'm on my second or third attempt of trying to build a no-code app, and I'm just like, I could do this so much faster. <laughs> Like I mean, as a as a hipster bespoke developer, Ryan, I understand. <laughs> that thing. Uh, yeah, I, again, I you know, and it's interesting because when I've actually seen somebody using a no code solution, it does, you know, you see all like at least I because I come from a programming background, I see all of the flaws of that particular app, <laughs> but they love it. Like they're super excited about the ability. Like this is amazing; it's saving us so much time and energy and all that, which is really what you want them to be able to do at the end of the day, but. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I could have built you something yeah. way cooler. It would take me a little longer, maybe, but it'd be more bespoke to your yeah. needs. So it is definitely a step up from if you don't have the skills, a step up from emailing the spreadsheet around and asking people I mean, to fill it in and email it back to you. That's when that's the alternative. Yeah, these, these solutions are great. It's also much better than you know access databases. So I'll take this every day of the week. Oh, access! That was my favorite. Uh, yes, access. We talked about it many times. Uh, well, uh, you know, Asia, you know, has a slow week. I I didn't find anything I thought was worthy of us talking about at any length. And so, when I don't have a stories for Asia, I went to the well, and I found the story for us, which is from Oracle, of course. Uh, but this one, this one actually spoke my interest because I really, it's a really a broader conversation. It's an Oracle announcement, but I, I have a broader kind of conversation. This is kind of spurred for me, and so. You know, the announcement is that Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI, has now released a mobile app. Well, they actually released it in November, but they've updated the mobile app, and they added a couple additional features, and so that's what this announcement was about. Uh, and so you know, they wrote an entire blog post on two new features uh, in addition to the 1.0 release that they did in November. So in November, they released in their mobile app the ability to view alarms, check your billing information, explore resources from different regions and compartments, view your monitoring information on resources, and check your resource limits. And then this new release... They gave you auto sign in, Ooh. Uh, because you know, God forbid, if I use this dumb thing, I have to sign in or log into it. And then uh, they gave you multiple account support, uh, which is funny to me. Is you have to find someone who has one account for Oracle, but you know, hey, someone has multiple accounts somewhere. <laughs> uh, so those two are the new two features. So that's really what they give you. Which, when you really think about it, is not a lot. I can view alarms. I can check my billing resources. I can check a so. I was kind of like, you know, I've used the AWS Mobile Console app a few times. And I really started to ask myself, like, what do I want a cloud mobile app to do, really, at the end of the day, when I'm out and about? And so I thought I'd take a look and see what Amazon's doing, what Google's doing, and Azure's doing. And so, uh, you know, you know, the reason why I was using the AWS Mobile Console is because, uh, you know, I had an idea for a company, and I was like, ooh, I could buy a domain, maybe. I had an idea for the domain, I had an idea for the company, and I do this all the time. I buy domains that I then renew for the end of time that I never do anything with. <laughs> I like to buy them. And so I said, you know, my register of choice, of course, is Route 53 because it's cheap. Uh, it's not GoDaddy, which I hate, and I like it. So I, you know, go to the Amazon Mobile Console app because I'm in the car driving at the time, pulled over, you know, go to the thing, try to find Route 53. No Route 53 in the Mobile Console app. I can't buy a domain. I can't search for a domain. I can't do anything with Route 53 in the mobile app. So, you know, you can't do it. 
but you know there are some other things you can do with it and so you know they advertise it as let's customer view and manage resources to support incident response while on the go and so they give you uh, some capabilities which may make you be able to do that so things like you can bounce an ec2 box so you know in the classic windows uh, world reboot is the fix for 99 percent of all problems and so, you know, if you're incident management, you're on the go, and you just need to reboot the EC2 host, you can do that from the AWS console app. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking about the other very common things that you may have go wrong in a server, like disk space running out. Can't increase disk space on an EBS volume. Uh, you know, if you're running containers on your EC2 host, you can't stop or start tasks or pods. Uh, so that really kind of kills you for ECS or EKS. And you can't really do anything for security either, which may be the other thing that you are really super urgent about doing from a security side. So, you know, that's that's my experience with the Amazon app. And then Google Cloud, of course, has one as well. Uh, and with their app, they give you the ability to see dashboards, instant states, reboots, look at traces. And they even let you run Cloud Shell, which is actually really powerful, because you can do pretty much anything you want to in Google Cloud with the Cloud Shell. Uh, and so I think this is actually probably the better of the, Google, the mobile apps, uh, the ones I saw, just because of that alone. Uh, and so we'll see what that you know ends up doing in the future. And then Azure, of course, in classic Microsoft form, there are several partner apps in addition to the official Azure mobile app, which I love. Uh, and so you can use those, uh, or you can use the Azure one. And Azure allows you to track your resources, stay informed, and take corrective actions like starting and stopping your VMs and your web apps. Uh, but that is it for Azure. So. You know, really looking at this, if your play is that this is for you to be able to do rapid incident management, I don't think any of them really hit the mark beyond Google Cloud. But like at the end of the day, is that really what you guys want to do with a mobile app for cloud? Yeah, I mean, it, no. to me, it doesn't fill a critical need that people were begging for. It it was a starting point of hey, you know, it'd be great if we had some real estate on the phone. We want an app. What should we do? Okay, well, let's let's think up a few things that we can do. Uh, that people would want to do on the go and release an app, and you know, almost almost like it was a marketing uh, develop uh, development activity instead of a customer driven one. Yeah, I feel like you know, it's 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 answering a question that hasn't been asked for sure. And you know, I haven't looked at the mobile apps in such a long time just because I think the last time I looked at it was when I discovered there were mobile apps and I was like this is hilarious and I just had to check it out it was and it met the you know the description that I had in my head which is I couldn't really do anything um, the AWS account uh, app at the time didn't allow you to switch between different accounts um, without like fully logging out and logging back in with different credentials and and you know SSO flows or were non-existent and yeah it's just it's Maybe it's instant response for a very particular app, but I mean, even doing a reboot the one time I tried to do it was actually clunky and hard and probably very air prone. It's not something I would want to have as part of the normal process. So it really just felt like it wasn't designed to do anything. Um, so I don't know. Like, it seems like there's an, you know a gap in space here, but you know I don't know what what I don't really know what it is and how to fill it. I would think like no one else does. I think what I would want would be, you know, the an app where ahead of time you can set up four, five, ten, whatever of your top uh, automation items that are fully vetted, fully tested, fully customized, and then use your phone to trigger them if you had to. But yeah, otherwise, I, I don't want to do stuff from my phone if it's important. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, it's, like, a, it's a little funny because I where you want to be particular and detail-oriented, right? Yeah. Just sort of reboot things at random. Yeah. I mean, where I, where I would like to do more is on my 
my iPad. <laughs> my mobile phone, I don't really care to do as much um, for similar reasons. Because again, it's it's a small screen. It's it's very error prone. But you know, it would be nice if you could get to. And I didn't check this, but uh, maybe you can get to SSM. No, nope, you can't. <laughs> so never mind. I was say, if you get to SSM, you might actually be able to do that. You might be able to create your own know, your common automations and that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, my real time feedback is you cannot. So. Uh, but you you can run Lambda or at least get to Lambda console. I don't know what you can actually do inside Lambda once you're there, but uh, you, know, you can definitely see some stuff. But you know, I think there's the billing is maybe helpful for a certain type of executive who's on the move and wants to see what they're spending on a day-to-day basis. I could see that being somewhat valuable. Monitoring for a quick, like, hey, I just got page at 3 in the morning, and I want to know if it's actually down or if it's just a weird paging anomaly. You, know, you could set up your dashboard for CloudWatch you know, in that. So I could see some of those use cases, but I... You know, it, it is really interesting. To, what is the right use case for a mobile app? And is it really just a checkbox? Which is what it sort of feels like when you look at these features. Like, why did OCI build this? Like, do do they have you know your customers are one of you alarms and check billing information? Like, they don't even provide some of the other things that Amazon and Azure provide. Um, I will say that I, I did think the Azure app looked the prettiest. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, because they, they had graphs in there. My, my executive side I was like, ooh, graphs. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just definitely a uh, you know interesting concept of like, what do you really want a mobile app to do? And if you have ideas, uh, our listeners, please come tell us on the CloudPod mm-hmm. uh, Slack channel or you know uh, email me Justin at thecloudpod.net and tell me what you would like your mobile app to do for cloud. Because I, I am kind of curious what people have in mind for this kind of stuff. All right, Peter, take us to lightning round. EKS Cuddle now supports creating node groups using resource specifications and dry run mode. Uh, I always love to get a good EKS Cuddle in, especially if it's dry. You're just, because it's going to piss me off that you're saying Cuddle. You know it is. Duh. Duh. Sorry. I, think, I, don't think you were, I don't think you were a host when we discovered that it is actually called Cuddle. It That's was how, not. It Take is too. It is in the, it is in the documentation. What? What do you want to call Cube it? Cuddle is a, is a thing. It's not EKS spoon. Maybe how about EKS spoon? I call. I, I mean, maybe I, maybe I'm misremembering. But there I, there, I is, there was definitely a a firm way of how cube cuddle should be pronounced, uh, and I don't remember what it is at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> it was in it was in the uh, it was definitely in a release note that they released for this. Wow, oh. this is this is a sad day in computer technology. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> Amazon Athena now presents query execution plans to aid tuning. I mean, the, oh, sorry, God. Yeah, that's the only thing that's going to fix my my Athena queries if it, if Athena does it for me. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, the only the only way you know that your query execution was sucking was just using Athena in general. So I don't know why you need the execution plan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> AWS Step Functions adds new data flow simulator for modeling input and output processing. I mean, maybe that'll actually give me the ability to simulate my understanding of the model and step functions, because, man, that is a tough one sometimes. <laughs> what, you mean tracing an input through, like, 27 step functions is, is, is difficult? I don't understand. Yeah, it's so weird. They should make it no code. <laughs> Basically is. YAML now. Amazon TextTract announces quality updates to its tables extraction feature. Meaning somewhere there's a manager who is trying to make a quality engineer happy by doing a press release about all the amazing work they do for quality control. 
and this particular work. And you know, it's review time, so you gotta make people feel good. I'm failing to extract the knowledge that I need to understand why this would be important. Yeah. Well, the Internet Group Management Protocol, IGMP, uh, multicast on AWS Transit Gateway, is now available in major AWS regions worldwide. Amazon continue to tell you, you can't use multicast unless it's us. We can use it for the WAN. You can't use it for the LAN. So weird. So So weird. Got to be a technical thing. I just know it is, but I don't understand enough about networking to know what that technical thing is. GA alert. Azure Blob Storage supports objects up to 200 terabytes in size. This was the one story Azure launch that I could have put in the main show, and I saved you all from this. So you're welcome. Yeah. I, do, I do think you missed the one above this one, Peter. No. What do you mean? Yeah. IGMP right. and then Azure Blob Storage. You didn't do that one. Oh, you did do that one. Sorry. We did IGMP. You commented on it. I did. Yeah. It's a long day. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a long day i'm in for the long day uh yeah there are new digital rewards and racer profile personalization features on the aws deep racer console just showing me that i've completely lost the thread on all things deep racer like we we care about the digital rewards and the racer profile photo like okay <laughs> Clearly, I, clearly, this is turning into a video game yeah. with a real-world component that I have just missed. Oh, it's a new the Pokemon Go component is just no more in COVID times, and they've just given in to the fact that it basically it's been a video game all the time. <laughs> yeah, I want. I wonder if you get can give me a Doji coin for winning some. Right. Yeah. What are the digital rewards? Are they actual rewards, or is it just like now I can give my persona a mohawk because I want to race? It's probably like gamification, right? Like, oh, you can show your you can show your winning trophies or something, and people say that makes it more engaging with people. And I don't ever really understood that. Yeah. I want Doji coin. You spent six hundred hours trading this model, and now you get a little ribbon icon. Congratulations! Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. AWS Identity and Access Management now makes it easier to relay the user's IAM role activity to their corporate identity. Making it easier to identify who pissed off Twitter today and firing them. Ooh. Now, who removed, who rebooted these two box? Now we can get them. Well, I mean, you could kind of get them before, right? It just was complicated. Like AWS invoked role from this account, and then you had to go to that account and look at that log, and then you yeah. could maybe figure it out eventually. But it was awful. So this is actually really nice. I'm super happy to see this. It's a really nice feature. Yeah, I know. We're making jokes, but we've been waiting for this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jesus. So nice. AWS Control Tower introduces changes to preventive S3 guardrails and updates to S3 bucket encryption protocols. So weird. The Control Tower wants to be in control. Ooh. That is weird. I'm just happy that, you know, all my money spent given to Amazon's press team to just write really confusing headlines just to bother Peter is really paying off. Yeah, that was a, I had to go slow on that one. <laughs> that I was hard. like, I'm going to mess this up. I can't. <laughs> Tommy Twister. Uh, Amazon FSX and AWS Backup announced support for copying file system backups across AWS regions and AWS accounts. And every Windows person trying to do DR rejoices. Yes. 
<laughs> Indeed. No more Robocopy. Introducing SAP integration with Google Cloud Data Fusion. Again, in one of those articles, I just couldn't make it to the main show title. <laughs> I just didn't want to talk about SAP again. Again, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, if you're using Google Cloud Data Fusion, and you're using SAP. You know, it's a marriage made in heaven for everyone else. We're just like, uh, all right, whatever. Yeah. All right. Uh, we really missed Jonathan's interactivity on that one. I'll tell you. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna have to give it to the control tower, Justin. Yeah. Nice. That one. You made me picture I, I the did. control tower running for office. Nice. <laughs> I did. I did really enjoy. Uh, you know, Ryan trying to pull out a pun on a text extract. Yeah, it was close. It was a close it second. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. You overdid it. You just. You went a little too far. You went. You yeah, went full yeah. extract, and you should have just went barely extract, and you would have yeah, been good. Yeah. It's one of those things. That, you know, it's hard to be funny when you're trying. Just, yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank God I don't make money as a comedian. I, oh, yeah, it wouldn't end well. That has to be the toughest job Almost. in the world. Can you imagine writing an entire like stand-up? I cannot. <laughs> I cannot. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're on the uh, Amazon Prime. There's a TV show called The Amazing Miss Maisel, and she's a female comedian in the '50s. Yeah, for, you know, it's a great show. It's a good show. Just watching her, her struggle to put her act together and all that. You know, it's kind of it's just one of those little reminders. Like, yeah, this is this is not an easy job to be a comedian. Yeah. So, Seinfeld, and especially for a woman in that time and era when women were meant to be at home in the kitchen, per society's rules. Uh, you know, just really interesting. I don't know if you saw the movie Seinfeld made years ago called Comedian. I guess. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, where he built, he starts from scratch with no none of his old material, and it is painful to watch. <laughs> it's painful to watch that poor guy get through that, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, well, we have some new things coming up that you should be aware of. First up, AWS container events are coming to you in May. So if you're on the Kubernetes side of the fence using EKS, uh, they will have an event during KubeCon, May 4th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Central European Standard Time. Uh, because of course KubeCon uh, in May is in Europe, so it'll be sure should be recording and things you can find on the YouTube channel um, after the fact. So they're going to have a couple of interesting talks: Amazon EKS roadmap and vision, uh, the modern CMS on top of EKS and EFS, and EKS on serverless with Fargate. Um, all riveting topics, I'm sure. And then if you're on the ECS side of the world, uh, they will be running an Amazon Container Day at DockerCon, uh, which is virtual May 26th uh, from 10 to 6 Eastern Standard Time, all about ECS. Uh, they did not tell us what exactly they're going to be covering, but I suspect they're going to cover ECS roadmap and a couple other things, just similar to the EKS. It just makes sense. Again, it is still Amazon Summit season. Uh, if you have not signed up for a summit and you were interested in signing up for a virtual summit, please do so before they go away. Again, the America one is May 12th through the 13th. Uh, there are many, many other dates uh, which you're going to find in our show note for Asia Pac uh, and Europe. Uh, so you get the right time zone so you don't have to be up in the middle of the night, which is always nice. And then, uh, you know, we mentioned last week uh, the, the cloud storage solutions at Azure Storage Day on April 29th. And Azure uh, gave us five reasons you should attend this that I thought I'd share with you real quick. Uh, first of all, you can learn about cloud storage trends from the experts. Uh, from the keynote session from Tad Brockway, CVP of Azure Storage and Networking, uh, we'll address the forces currently driving cloud adoption for enterprise storage needs. Hopefully, you'll have a lovely chart that shows us all of the different ultra-premium storage offerings to help make it much easier. I hope the marketing uh, visualization team is hard at work simplifying that diagram because it needs to be simplified quite a bit. Spoiler alert, cloud storage is growing. 
Yeah. Option to the right. Yeah. Data warehouses and, and you know space and all the things going into the data warehouse. It's all coming. Uh, number two is Azure Storage Solutions and Actions. And this is demos for all their storage solutions, including Azure Disk Storage for Block, Azure Blob Storage and Azure Data Lake Storage for Object Storage, and Azure Files and Azure NetApp Files all on demos in the real world use cases uh, you can check out. Uh, you can map your Azure storage services, your enterprise workloads. This is the class for all of our listeners who are confused about premium, ultra, and all the things. They will help you figure out which storage service applies to your enterprise workload. And it always starts with ultra because you will get fired for not paying the ultra option. It's just the black box <laughs> wizard. It asks you three questions, and the answer is always ultra. It should be. Because, I mean, like, again, <laughs> you have a downtime due to your storage not performing, and they go, like, well, you know, why didn't you pay for the ultra storage? That's not a conversation you're going to want to have. Nope. So that's a tough, tough day. Uh, you can get answers to all your storage questions uh, through live event, live chat events uh, to allow you to ask, what is the difference between ultra and premium storage? Because I don't really understand, other than it, pay, uh, it costs me more money, all available to you there. And then, of course, number five, learn the best practices for migrating and modernizing your app development with lift and shift cloud storage strategies. So if those all were riveting ideas for why you want to go attend this, uh, do sign up for that. Again, the link to that is in our show notes. And that is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. Bye, everybody. See ya. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.